I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jack Wright, legal name John Wright, is a Regents Professor in the Department of Geography at New Mexico State University, whose research encompasses land conservation, cultural geography, and environmental planning. He helped found and served as chair of the New Mexico Land Conservancy from 2003 to 2012, and recently returned to its board. He is the co-author of Saving the Ranch, Conservation Easement Design in the American West, published in 2004, and has widely published also on conservation easements and other land protection techniques. Today's interview focuses on the mission, the work, and the strategies of the New Mexico Land Conservancy. So Jack, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. Happy to be here. So Jack, how did you first get interested in Nature Conservancy so much that you devoted your life to it? Well, I think like a lot of us, we, have, we find solace in nature as a kid. We all had a place we went to that meant a lot to us, and you bond with it. You have a sense of gratitude, of belonging. Robert Frost said, uh, we belong to the earth before the earth belonged to us. And there's something very profound and deep inside some of us that we love the land, and then we use our intellect and our energy to find ways to return the favor. And in my case, it's land conservation. I began as a kid in Maine, on the coast of Maine, a little town called Winterport, cool little place. Went on to college in Massachusetts and a doctorate at Berkeley. So I bounced around the country, got a job here in New Mexico. But prior to that, I lived in Montana for many years and was a land use planning director of all things in rural counties across that state. And what that means is you're dealing with land use regulations. I was drawn to it because I thought, well, perhaps we can move things around in a wiser way to have development that respects nature. And what I found out was, yes, that can happen, but mostly it's about how the land will be developed, not whether it should be, which is a whole separate decision. And so about 1976, with some friends, we discovered this idea of what's called a land trust, which is a nonprofit organization. Think of the Nature Conservancy as the obvious national and international example. But at that time, there was a group called the Montana Land Reliance formed, and they were doing this thing called a conservation easement. I said, what is that? It sounded fascinating. A voluntary way for a landowner to choose to not develop their land and be financially compensated through income and estate tax benefits. It can get kind of arcane, but that's essentially it. You say, well, we're not gonna to try to take from you, which is what zoning and regulation always butts up against, is the takings clause of the Constitution. We say, well, what's beyond that? Well, it's giving or buying, respecting landowners' rights, full-fledged private property rights, that's this approach. And I found it almost entrancing that you could find a way to the middle way, as a Buddhist might call it, a practical sense of what is private property. In other words, the sacred earth is also real estate. And that was the realization that a lot of us had in our 20s. And we shifted into this voluntary approach uh, using this tool called a conservation easement, which we can, of course, discuss. Yeah, and I think we'll get into more of the nitty gritty of that a little later. But it seemed to me in reading uh, on the website that it's almost like the owner becomes a co-owner with the uh, conservancy in, in such a way that the, 
that the land can't be developed uh, in, as it might otherwise? Well, the tool itself, think of land ownership as a bundle of sticks. And we're used to thinking you can sever off mineral rights or water rights. We're used to that. But think of the development rights value of your property as a separate item that can be donated away. It has an appraised value and you get a tax break proportional to the value of what you give up. And as the land trust, we don't own the land. In a sense, the landowner is still in charge except for the things that cha they chose to give up. Right, right. So it's, it's just the specifics of future yes. development. We hold the conservation easement in perpetuity. And the old joke is perpetuity is a long time, especially near the end. You know, so it's it's kind of a right, funny right. idea. Yeah. But so far, these these easement agreements they they began in 1890s in the East Coast. It's not a new idea, but it's an expanding, very practical approach to development and protection of key biodiverse, beautiful lands, including ranches and farms. So I think a lot of us are familiar with other kinds of easements, like for instance, utility easements, that you know, even though I own property up to such such a line, right. the, the, the very boundary of it is, has to be accessible to the utility companies. So you don't have full control over that land, even though it's yours. Yeah, the, the, a conservation easement is quite different. A power line easement, a railroad easement, a highway easement, these are positive rights someone else holds to use that land. The conservation easement is the flip side. It's saying you can't do something on a piece of property. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's no way eminent domain can be used in the way that a highway easement can be enforced. So it's voluntary. And one of the beautiful parts of this is that you discover, as you, I'm 72 years old now, you discover as you age the wisdoms embedded in the Constitution that when you're younger, you may knock your head against. And the right of private property empowers all of this conservation across the United States because landowners are in charge. There's now over 25 million acres in this country under voluntary conservation easements. That's about 20 Yellowstone National Parks. So it's a vastly successful mm -hmm. idea that embraces the Constitution and free market capitalism, but also ecology and conservation and the human heart. And I imagine this is happening more in the West, where there's a lot more undeveloped land than in the East, or is it also uh, in more developed areas? It began in the East, is still extensively used, but the acreage sizes are so different. For example, if you're on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, a four-acre conservation easement is a big deal. But not to jump ahead, we just completed a 315,000-acre conservation in New Mexico, on the Armendaris Ranch next to the White Sands Missile Range, and we can circle back to that. So it, it's a question of scale. And, and most of your work uh, has been at the regional level, I think, although I, I saw from your resume that you're interested in global environmental issues. Also, I think it, it mentioned Middle East and, and Asia. I've worked in Sri Lanka um, a bit on their national park system, mostly advising people remotely I was in Sri Lanka for about five weeks one time and fell in love with the place. And it's the same issues. Interestingly, the very idea of how land trusts work, not just preserving land where we're just visitors, but places where human beings live. 
the cultural landscape is also an ecological treasure. And in the developing world, the idea of setting aside a piece of land and saying, thou shalt not use it, doesn't work very well because people need to eat. They have forage needs for their herds. They need fiber and they need wood. And across uh, Sri Lanka, Africa, other places, the idea of a conserved landscape where people live and wisely use the resources gave birth, in a sense, to the land trust idea here. And so it's possible to specify which uses are going to be allowed and which not? Yes, every conservation easement agreement is different. They're all negotiated. Some of them, when we get into projects, you'll see, are very simple. A rancher has a piece of property and says, I want to hold back two home sites for my kids and the rest of the 10,000 acres I don't want ever see a house on. Other places, it's mixing development and conservation easements, and some of those exist in the state as well. Every deal is a bit different. So there's a lot of flexibility, it sounds like. There is, and the landowner has tremendous power in this, all the way to the point where they're saying, it's, there's not enough in it for me. And unlike confrontational environmental standoffs, if you get to a place where the answer is no, shake hands, God bless. There's no lawsuit, there's no injunction, there's no public shaming. There's, it's a very different approach on private land totally different than issues of public lands. So very different from, uh, let's say, trying to turn a certain land into a national park or a national monument. The Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks National Monument was all on BLM land. Uh, so the Antiquities Act, President Obama could sign with a stroke of the pen and create this. A national park is similar, but that has to be voted on by Congress. So the New Mexico Land Conservancy is an accredited statewide nonprofit land trust. Who, who is it accredited by? Accreditation means you're professional, that you have staff, that you operate with the best standards, that you have money in the bank, that you have the ability to monitor and enforce these conservation easements. And that sounds spooky, but all it means is once a year you pay a visit to the property, you, you talk to the landowner, have a look around, you, if necessary, re-photograph from certain points. The idea is to make sure that the big things don't happen. In other words, someone gave up the right to subdivide and they built a house they shouldn't have. That's extremely rare. Of the 12,000 easements in this country, maybe 15 have risen to that level of violation. But we have to go out, our due diligence, because the landowners are effectively paid by the, the taxpayer. Uh, we have to make sure we have their back. They're paid by the taxpayer in the sense that they're exempt from certain taxes. They have right? a, a, they are received tax deductions right. on their income tax for up right. to 17 years, and it can reduce the value to the point where there's no estate tax paid. That can be a real motivating factor. I noticed that there was a five-part mission. I was wondering if we could talk about all five parts, and um, I have them here. You don't necessarily have to have them in your head. It's right not away. a pop quiz. Huh? It's okay. not a pop quiz. So the first one is, I think it's pretty obvious, creating scenic and open spaces, protecting them from particularly housing. Housing, mining. Uh, Essentially housing, for the yeah. most part. Right. Uh, the mining question, it gets a little bit wonky here, but if someone owns the mineral rights, they have to give up the right to mine, hard rock mine forever, 
Oil and gas, if done well, is compatible with conservation easements. That's essentially it, is housing. And this, the second one was protecting wildlife and natural habitats. So it really, I think, mm -hmm. dovetails quite directly with protection of endangered species, for instance. A lot of these values mentioned in those, they stack up together. And the tax deductibility of a conservation easement, there's a section of the IRS code and congressional legislation that specifies you can qualify as open space, which is a broad brush, farms and ranches automatically because they're large, wildlife habitats, significant ecosystems, archaeological sites. Many, many things will qualify a property for these income tax and estate tax benefits. And also uh, restoring w watersheds? Yeah, keeping the watersheds in one piece so they don't get fragmented is a big deal. And that's how conservation easements around Grants New Mexico, for example, has been used very effectively along the Rio Grande and Corrales, New Mexico, and elsewhere. The Fort Union Ranch up on the, on the northeast, the Wagon Mound Ranch. A lot of these watersheds are held by ranchers and farmers. And if you can keep the housing out of there, you have a chance of keeping that watershed intact. And sometimes it also means restoring it in a way, right? I mean, that's one thing I read on the website, that there were pictures before and after pictures of before restoration and after. Well, we don't do real restoration. That's the landowner's choice. But we give the opportunity, since there won't be houses there, for either this landowner or whoever owns the property in the future to do restoration if they choose, because the conservation easement agreement runs with the land. It doesn't matter that the initial landowner donates it or sells it, but everyone who buys that property has to go along with that agreement. And they know it because it's revealed during the title search and the due diligence before they buy. You mentioned earlier that it's, while it's rare, it is possible for a landowner to violate the agreement. What happens at that point? Does the Nature Conservancy have to sue the well, landowner? The land, the land trust, again, has due diligence and a fiduciary, meaning legal financial responsibility, to make sure that the agreement is not violated. And if it is, you have to go to court. But I, I don't want to emphasize that because it's, those are unicorns. Those are extremely right, rare. Right. A person who puts an easement on their property is the last one to violate it. It's down the line that potentially either misunderstanding can take place. An easement is not a covenant that, that can be broken easily. It's not a zoning regulation that politically can be shoved aside. Right. It's, it's quite binding. It's a legally binding agreement. So it could happen, for, I mean, the person's not giving up ownership of the land. They're just giving up uh, ownership of certain rights to the land. Yes. So you could imagine maybe the ch children or grandchildren might not understand the agreement or think they can get away with violating it, maybe slightly, they, can, they could put a house just outside the boundary. Usually it would be a misunderstanding more than an intentional violation. And again, that relationship that we maintain with the landowners every year is the biggest assurance that the thing won't get violated. We've never had a violation in, in 20 years. In 20 years, but again, 20 years is only one generation at true most. True enough, true enough. I so, think. There's a certain amount of this that is based on literally a trust, a land yeah, trust, trust in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have to work together and, make pe and have people understand what, what the deal is 
And people drawn to buy a property under conservation easement are, again, very unlikely to be the one to try to violate. Right. No, I, I understand that. It's, and I understand why you don't want to scare people. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh -huh. In my almost 50 years, um, there was only one project where a landowner violated the easement and didn't build any structures. They did they expanded roads, they, they cut timber that was agreed not to be cut. It was worked out. There was a way to work it out. Uh, it did go to court, uh -huh. but the landowner said, mea culpa, I'll fix it. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So they, they backed down, basically. Yeah. yeah. So what we've been talking about so far is about how kind of doable this is you know, to conserve land. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me that it's more doable politically than a national park or national monument because it's private land. And so it's a voluntary uh, redesignation of the land and, and what it can be used for or what it can't be used for. I'm wondering, even though it's not as highly politicized uh, a process, has there been pushback in cases you know, from developers or other vested interest ranchers? In the early days, yes, because there was misunderstanding. They saw it as a regulation, a government land grab, these kinds of things. But today, the cattle growers associations, the stock growers associations, are very much on board. They can speak for themselves, but the Montana Stock Growers Association embraces this approach. They work with the Montana Land Reliance. The Wyoming Stock Growers have formed their own land trust to do conservation easements. Same for the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. They have a land trust to do this. It's now mom and apple pie. It's the Constitution, it's private property rights. It's, it's an exercise in freedom, a way to recapitalize your operation, to keep it in the family. A lot of the suspicion is ebbing away because we don't lie. We tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Because again, this is not a confrontation. If you choose not to do this, fine. And in some cases, someone will loop back 20 years later who is opposed because their neighbors have done this. And they say, okay, I trust you now. Uh -huh. I believe this will work. So it, it wouldn't bring up things like grazing rights, for instance, that you have, uh, ranchers have, let's say, on public lands because they're not public lands. These are private lands. Uh, we leave, we know that the ranchers and farmers are the best stewards of these properties mm -hmm. or else the land wouldn't be in the high quality shape it's in. Mm -hmm. So we don't have anything to do with those operations. Remains entirely their choice because they're the pros and we're not. Now Ted Turner, I guess, would be an example of a large landowner who's done this, this kind of land conservancy. I mean, he, millions he of acres, I think. Millions of acres, including, again, this Armanderas Ranch, which we might as well talk about at this yeah. moment. That was an old land grant to the Armanderas family. It's east of Truth or Consequences and runs north all the way to Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge, a vast area and sort of west and north of the White Sands Missile Range. In this case, Turner Enterprises decided we want to look at ways to conserve this property because that's why Turner buys this stuff. Now he's Captain Outrageous. He can tick people off. He's a big personality and bless him now he, he is suffering from some cognitive problems. Some kind of dementia. Yeah, he has yeah. Lewy body dementia yeah. and he's turned operations over to his son-in-law and others. But in this case a conservation easement became part of national defense. 
And let me explain. The missile range has a program through the DOD to buy up conservation easements, in other words, to buy the development rights on lands adjacent to them as a safety buffer for their operations, for rocket tests, for aircraft. They don't want power lines, cell phone towers, housing, right. because if a missile goes awry, it could kill people. So the Turner deal was a mix of DOD money paying for the conservation easement, about half of it, and the other half, Turner Enterprises, donated the easement. Uh, so it was a 50-50 deal, and that closed last year. It's uh, the biggest one of these buffer deals that the Department of Defense has ever done. It's ironic to some people, wait a minute, the missile range, they blow stuff up. <laughs> but the Nature Conservancy works very closely with White Sands to make sure that when something is shot that they try to protect the, the most delicate pieces of the landscape from harm. They do assessments of these, not just White Sands, Fort Ord in California, all over the country. These bases, very quietly, are kind of wildlife refuges. And so when you add the buffers around them, White Sands will become, in a sense, kind of a Chihuahuan Desert Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's going to be a massive piece of this landscape that will never have development on it. So I'm wondering, is this something that benefits the environment and the animals and the plants more than people? Because people aren't necessarily given access, right? I mean, the, the public, well, I mean. Um, that's up to the, in the, missile up range, to the owner, right? Yeah. A conservation easement does not ever require public access. That would be right. the end of it. No landowner right. in their right mind would do that. Right. Yeah. So they have the right to allow people in or exclude people. In a lot of places, there are walk-in hunting seasons. You knock on the door, may I hunt on your property? And some landowners may have too many deer or elk were competing with their livestock for the forage and they said please you have a permit i know where they are go hunt so but it's no requirement and once again if that word got out that you had to allow the public in we're well, at, well, we'd be out of business the word doesn't get out because it's not true <laughs> it's yeah but there's rumors the rumors right, right. in the again in the early days were mm -hmm. you know your place will become public the government will confiscate it of course that's nonsense mm -hmm. the fact that these ag organizations including the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, strongly support this, this uh -huh. approach. Uh -huh. So in a way, it's, it seems like a kind of a willing diminishment of, of one's rights as a human <laughs> you know, to, to exploit the environment. I, there's a wonderful book out now called Braiding Sweetgrass by a woman named Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh -huh. And she's Potawatomi Nation from New York. But she talks about reciprocity a lot in that book. Respect, gratitude, dare we say it, love of land. So when you think about these deals, and once you get past the barrier of mistrust with the landowner, and they say, yeah, you're shooting straight, all of a sudden comes out of hiding is, yeah, I love this place. I really do. Mm -hmm. I was afraid you guys were going to try to push me around, and you're not. And then the gratitude surfaces, that sense of, this place has given me so much, I want to give back to it. And we're all different politics, all different ideologies, faiths, but there's something innate and deep inside human beings that Robin Wall Kimmerer in that book talked about, gratitude. 
So you mentioned that she's Native American. What's been the relationships with Native American groups, and what's their feeling about what's what's being done? Well, that's a very a very mixed response because there's no one Native American point of view here. Mm-hmm. The nations that we've worked with support this strongly because of their fidelity to the good earth. And they're saying, yes, we have our grievances of, of lands lost, um, past histories being quite brutal, but the earth should not suffer for that. Let's protect the earth that we all share is I think where most people come down to. And in fact, where I work in Montana, the Blackfeet Nation have created their own land trust to protect inholdings of non-native land. Other places, the Salish Nation in western Montana now runs the National Bison Range. That's a partnership in stewardship and conservation. In, in this state, the Pueblos, uh, we, we have a board member who's Diné, who strongly supports this work. And the politics gets pushed aside. It's the good earth we all share. So let's conserve it. And I don't know if they would have a reason to have an opinion about private land owned by non-indigenous. And it's sort of, there might be some resentment that it's owned by non-indigenous in the first place. Well, well, they can really speak for themselves. But what I've noticed is, for example, Acoma Pueblo, Mm -hmm. they grudgingly created a casino to raise money to buy back land that used to be Acoma land. So there's a lot of pragmatism inside the tribes about this, too. And then there's also coordination with other groups, the uh, U.S. National Resources Conservation Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yep. You mentioned uh, the White Sands Missile Range. So this, it's, it's a very interagency kind of work, it sounds like. Well, the village of Corrales near Albuquerque is an example here. The Natural Resources Conservation Service has a farmland protection program where they will provide money, about half of the money, to buy conservation easements on important farmlands, and then the match has to come from the community. And Corrales passed a multi-million dollar bond, meaning property taxes were raised to match the federal money to then buy easements on important pieces of farmland in in the village of Corrales. That's how partnerships like that work. What about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Fish and Wildlife Service also has money to partner up and do conservation easements. The Department of Agriculture has programs that ranchers and farmers out there will know called the Wetland Reserve Program and the Cropland Reserve Program, where landowners are paid money for term conservation easements. They're not forever, but they could be 15 years. And that's a way to capitalize to monetize, in a sense, conservation for them. And very quietly out there, a lot of operations are really benefiting from that. And in time, perhaps that may lead to a perpetual agreement. No, in the five permission, there was actually one part that we left out, and that's uh-huh. about uh, historic and cultural sites. So where, where does that figure in? Well, a lot of the properties, if they have water on them, they have archaeological sites uh-huh. because people were everywhere. That's the old... The oldest trick in the book, if you want to find potsherds or ruins, go to water. And so on many of our properties, the Armanderas, for example, there are sites all over that property where Paleo-Indian people and more recent people lived. Every major property that we have done 
has evidence of human occupation before Europeans. Those resources are in fact woven into the, the fabric of the conservation easement agreement. And so what would be an example? Of, in what way would it enter into the agreement? Well, if there are sites of real significance that have been identified, the easement will specify that they can't be destroyed, they can't be plowed, they can't be dismantled. There should be uh, attention paid to them. But let's remember, animals and cows have been grazing all over this country for a long time, so that's no problem. It's just like if there's a historic structure on the property, that would be certainly encouraged to not tear that down. So these are places that are not the essential purpose of these deals, but they come along for the ride. So I'm a, I'm a little not clear exactly on how the easement would relate to, let's say, an archaeological site. Let's say it's a, by some miracle there's a major archaeological find mm -hmm. that happens. It's still on private land, so it can't be disturbed, but it, would, it, mm -hmm. would it be accessible to archaeologists, for instance? Well, there's a ranch up uh, on the San Juan River called the B Square. That's a pretty cool name. <laughs> it's about 12,000 acres. It's owned by a guy named Tommy Bullock, who uh, assembled it over many, many years. Down along the river, it's alfalfa, and then there's scarps, mesas, and desert, and it is full of archaeological sites. And what he has ag agreed to is allow the, uh, New the University of New Mexico anthropology program, archaeologists, to have free access to explore, to stabilize, to document all of those places on the property. That's just an example. Other landowners are willing to. And once again, it's, it's totally voluntary. He's, he's chosen to do this. Right, right. Yeah. Because sometimes there are kind of ironies, for instance, with the uh, trackways part of the monument. You yeah, know, that it's yeah. protected and therefore it can't be dug up. But if it's not dug up, then how do you know? It, how do you <laughs> appreciate what's there? Yeah, it's it's kind of it's confusing. It's in situ conservation, in a sense. But most of it's buried in that case. They yeah. know there's enough there. Yeah. Uh, to say it's important, but that's their decision as to how best to to safeguard it. Who who would have access? In what level should it be? excavated and right. documented and put in a museum versus allowed to stay in the ground. Right. Or, or another example, and this has nothing to do with, with easements, but um, La Cueva in our own Oregon Mountains, I mean, presumably there's a lot of archaeology below the surface there, but uh, who knows think. if it'll ever get uh, uh, excavated. Yeah, that's the National Monuments yeah. business, I guess, to right. figure that out. Right, right. So I'm wondering if you could give us uh, some examples of easements that you've done with, with um, property owners, um, maybe an example where it went smoothly and another example where it took some, as you put it be, before we started, a kind of counseling yes. you know, to, to make it happen. Well, again, this tool, this approach is across the political spectrum. We've worked with Hispano landowners in the far north. We've worked with Anglo people in the boot heel doesn't matter. We work with everybody. The, the beginning is the New Mexico Land Conservancy. A very important person in this story is a woman named Elizabeth Richardson, who had worked extensively in Colorado. She went to Radcliffe, a 
extraordinarily intelligent, strong, and successful woman who's still part of the board as an adjunct. But she and others created this group as a tiny little organization back in 2003. And she's still helping us move forward. Another person is two people, Sid and Cheryl Goodlow. They own the Carrizo Valley Ranch near Capitan, New Mexico. And Sid, if you want to be inspired by a life, Sid and Cheryl are those lives. Because what Sid identified after working in Africa, he's owned the Carrizo Valley Ranch for over half a century. He worked in Africa and saw how natural herds of animals would graze and then move on. The land would regenerate, the grasses would regrow. And the man named Alan Savory developed a system of short-term intense grazing and then move the cattle away. Pastures. Sid was one of the first in our country to adopt this grazing method and his place flourishes with grandma grass and others. He's an amazing man who early on saw the virtue of conservation easements as a natural accompaniment to his management of, of the land. He saw it as a why else would you manage the land the way he did with such grace if you then saw it covered with houses. So he joined the, our organization. He formed his own land trust briefly, and those easements were then transferred to the New Mexico Land Conservancy. It was about 6,000 acres up there between Sid and Cheryl, and then there's uh, a son who's done one as well. He's still active. He's in his 90s. I used to take classes from New Mexico State up there to show kids, kids, forgive me, I'm old, <laughs> to show students how a conservation easement works and then to listen to Sid and Cheryl. Uh, he's still an amazing source. He restored that place. He thinned the pinyon juniper. He did all this work. To, there's now water flowing in creeks that hadn't flown for flowed for decades before he did the work. He did tree ring studies to figure out what was the natural ecology. He uses fire as, as a natural disturbance regime to keep the land healthy. And then the conservation easement just comes from all that. He's a great advocate for it, one of the first ranchers in the state to be on board. And he got called all kinds of names at first. By, by, by neighboring. By ranchers owners. across the state. Yeah, But he's a tough tough Texan, now New Mexican. Mm -hmm. He calls himself, I'm the original Aggie. I went to Texas A&M. <laughs> so he'll say things like this. So extremely important figure. Uh, on the website, nmlandconservancy.org, you'll see profiles of him and other landowners, the list of projects. There's 115 projects that the New Mexico Land Conservancy has done, every one of them inspiring in a different way. So let me ask just a little technical question. So it, I found it fascinating to, to hear that you can actually make water flow where it didn't flow before mm -hmm. without diverting it, I'm nope. assuming. So how is that done? Well, the pinyon juniper woodlands thicken up. If you overgraze, the trees come in, the grass is gone, the trees consume more water than the grass does. There's less, when rain comes, there's less flow across the surface at times, and the creeks dry up. If you if fire in the past, if there's grass and mixed pinyon juniper, fire would naturally thin it to keep it in balance, to keep the hydrology together. 
But if there's too many trees, they suck up all the water and the creeks go dry. So Sid saw that and he fixed it. And we talk about creeks that run most of the time? Perennial. Or? They're now perennial wow. creeks. Yep. Amazing. He, he healed the land. There's a, a tikan olam in, uh, is, a, is a concept in Judaism. It's called healing the world, mm -hmm. repairing the world. Repairing the world, yeah. Yeah, and I think this land trust approach for Christians, it would be the translation of dominion that makes sense to me is to lower oneself, to have humility, to recognize the power we have as human beings and to exercise it with a gentler hand to provide for our families, to protect our countries, but also to help save the, save the planet, save the landscapes that we all come from. Uh, every tradition has an idea like this. Native traditions, as I've mentioned, it's about respect, reciprocity, gratitude. Two-eyed seeing, it's called. In other words, having one eye in the science and one eye in our hearts. Mm. So would stewardship be a good word also? This is land stewardship of the yeah. high order. Yes, that's, that's the phrase. Okay. Yeah. And Aldo Leopold, who uh, was a ranger around here, who helped create the first wilderness in the United States in 1924, 40 years before we had the Wilderness Act, the, the Gila Wilderness was established because the other rangers got tired of hearing him talk about stewardship. And Aldo said, that a thing is right when it tends to preserve the, the integrity and beauty of the land, it tends to be wrong when it does otherwise. You were talking about the you know, science and, and values in a sense, and that's mm -hmm. actually a topic that I'm hoping to do a, sh a whole show on at some point, because mm. I think for a lot of people, science is, is, has a connotation of being values neutral. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, and I'm not sure that it is, because values very much influence what science is done and how it's used, but it seems to me you need to have both in order to have a, a wise approach to, to life and to the environment. In a sense, data don't make decisions. Human beings do. Exactly. So, and we're complex. We need that empirical information. We need to know what is, how the land works, how money works. But we also can't overlook the sense that we're still kids who love that creek with water bugs going across it. We still want our place of comfort and solace we still feel a profound respect for and gratitude for all that is the beauty that's around us. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm a scientist, and I'm unabashedly saying out loud that, yes, I love the land. And I'll, all the landowners we work with, if you get to a certain point, they'll say it. Right. And there's an implication there of loving land more than profit, right? Because that's, that's the alternative, is if, particularly if it's land that's, lay, let's say, adjacent to an urban area. You know, that's very tempting. I mean, that could become the next housing development. Well, I always say it's, you can be pure of heart and thick of wallet at the same time. <laughs> I, I think to do this work, you have to not just make peace with property and real estate and capital, but you have to use it to animate your work. Again, what is in the Buddhist sense? Let's start with what we know to be objectively true in front of us how things work, and let's work with that instead of in opposition to that. Let me uh, quote from uh, the most recent Nature Conservancy, New Mexico Nature Conservancy uh, newsletter. Uh, speaking of Buddhism, you say, this is, I think these are your words, <laughs> this model of conservation easements is more like the Buddhist middle way because it's more about communication, 
conversation and reconciliation between viewpoints rather than regulation. It's economic Tai Chi. Yeah, I kind of mixed metaphor there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, that sounds pretty good. I was having, I was having a good day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the truth of it. A lot of times when people live in a confrontational mode, it's very tense. It's very stressful. And there are cases, if they try to build a dam that floods the Grand Canyon, I'll go, I'll suddenly turn on my heels and be in strong opposition to that. But most things are not that clear, especially on private land. And so there, this approach is a lot less stressful. There's a book out years ago called Getting to Yes about negotiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. I don't know to what extent you're at liberty to talk about a, a diff, more difficult case. And it sounds like most of them are not so difficult, but you did mention no. earlier that sometimes it takes a certain level of, of um, I don't know if I want to use the word persuasion, but you know, ongoing conversation, sometimes it takes years. You know, sometimes, I guess, um, mm -hmm. I would assume that people come to you rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but they may come to you with tentative kind of uh, ideas mm -hmm. about this and not at all ready to commit yet. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? Well, it's all about building relationships. And as we've talked about, there's a word here, trust. It can take someone years to get to the decision point. For others, they'll call us up, say, I've heard about you, it sounds good to me, let's begin. And the technical steps are many, but at that level, you have to trust, in a sense, have patience that those who are, are for whom the time is right we work with. We're back. We're backlisted now. We have projects that we're telling people we can't do it this year, but we'll get to you next year. And they wait. Now you talk about problems. Uh, rare, because once again, if it doesn't work for somebody, we nod our heads and bless you, we're on our way. We've had a couple of cases with people that were up to no good. And by that I mean, I have a property. I'm going to obscure all the details. There's a property. We'll call it a thousand acres. Let's say it's worth three million dollars. Just going to make it up. It's a rural property. And they'll come in and say, I want to donate an easement, but I'm going to claim a three million dollar tax deduction. And we'll say, oh really? Show me the appraisal that gives you that number. And they'll shop then that bogus easement around to other land trust groups. And what they don't realize is that we talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And once again, our responsibility as an accredited land trust by a group called the Land Trust Alliance is to make sure that these scammers don't get their way. It be accreditation began about 10, 12 years ago when some of these bad actors were, were working in Colorado and other places, phony baloney appraisals, it was fraud. And the IRS said, wait a minute, time out. Mm -hmm. You land trusts have to clean up your act. Uh. We agreed and said, how do we do it? We worked out this system of accreditation where everything you do has to be approved by the Land Trust Alliance. You get their stamp of approval that you're pros and what we have to do every time a deal is closed or about to close is we look at the appraisal. There's a form we have to sign putting our reputation on the line to the IRS saying this appraisal looks fair. It looks reasonable based on comparable deals around it. 
If we don't sign that, the deal doesn't happen. So we have the ability to push back against these scam artists. And there are not many out there, but lately there's, they're called syndicate easements, almost like the mob. Um, <laughs> and there are some political figures who have done this who claimed absurd levels of tax deduction. And once again, we have the taxpayers back. We cannot allow this to happen. And you mentioned that there are competing groups. Are there groups from other kind of nearby regions or are there other groups in New Mexico? The groups in New Mexico are the Taos Land Trust, the Santa Fe Conservation Trust, the used to be the Southern Rockies Agricultural Land Trust, the, the Rio Grande Agricultural Land Trust near TRC. There is the Malpai Borderlands Group, a rancher group in the boot heel and others. And the Nature Conservancy has a presence in every state, and they're an international group. And there's also open space programs, like in Albuquerque, where the city, cities and counties do these kinds of deals. Mm -hmm. And we did one with the city of Albuquerque when Martin Heinrich was the mayor, called the Hawk Watch property. Tejeras Canyon, east of Albuquerque, was a wildlife migration corridor. And the city raised the money and the New Mexico Land Conservancy was kind of the real estate broker to buy a, that incredibly important piece of land that's now safeguarded. And I assume that all of the land trust organizations are nonprofit? Yes. In order for a conservation easement to be tax deductible, you have to be a certified, and here we go, Nerdville, 501c3 mm -hmm. nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there's no tax deduction. I see. So this. I guess less reason to be competitive with the other organizations, right? Well, when New Mexico Land Conservancy started, we, our, the vision at the time was, we'll be kind of a clearinghouse of information, we'll help build capacity in the existing trusts. And when I, I just didn't think that was a viable approach. Then we became a statewide land trust doing deals everywhere. Uh, there was some animosity at the time because we were seen as the 500-pound gorilla. But at the time, we were small. Now we have a staff of eight. We have an office in Santa Fe and one in Silver City. And those uh, bumps and bruises of the past seem to have healed up. And then in terms of local um, projects, I guess the, the biggest one is, is um, White Sands Missile Range. The Armanderas. We've also done up by um, mm -hmm. Hillsboro. The, uh, there's a couple of ranches, a guy named Jim Winder, uh, put under conservation easement, and he did something quite interesting. He very carefully located large lots for a few houses with the majority of the land being under conservation easements. Berenda Creek and some other properties up there near Lake Valley, an old mining town. Uh, so Jim is, is an entrepreneur and a devoted conservationist. Again, I go back to this. Money is not the problem. Money, in, in fact, is the incentive that right. pushes this forward. Right. So once again, you don't go to, to the landowner, the landowner comes to you. But on the other hand, it would be important to the organization to publicize what you do so that more and more landowners who might be interested in this would know about it. What we do, we have website, annual newsletters, or semi-annual newsletters. But our, our best advertising is neighbor to neighbor. Somebody sees, well, this deal's going on over there. What is it? It's a conservation easement. I'm not sure. And then it happens, and then nothing changes. And then they ask, well, what was this? Oh, that might make sense for me. Then we get the call. 
So uh, maybe a film? Are there any films, uh, or at least on, online? The, if you Google or go on YouTube, Conservation Easement or Land Trust, there's a lot of stuff. For, for, for us on our website, nmlandconservancy.org, there's a short film where our outgoing director, who I have to mention, his name is Scott Wilbur. If you know Scott, he is, after devoted 18 years of service, retiring from being the executive director. He is, was the essential ingredient in this land trust succeeding. Extraordinarily talented, energetic. He doesn't seem to age. I don't know how he does it. He's a, a hiker and runner. Uh, his father was a BLM person. He was raised in Wyoming. He worked for the Nature Conservancy in Central America. And he has a true gift for making these deals happen and making the projects uh, help pay for themselves. There's one bit of information that landowners should know if they're listening. In New Mexico, we're one of few states where you not just get the federal income tax deduction and state income tax deduction or the estate tax benefit, there's a state income tax credit up to a half a million dollars that you will get if you donate a conservation easement. That really is a big incentive, and, and here, not to get lost in the weeds, but you can actually sell those tax credits to brokers who then represent very wealthy landowners who will take advantage of them. Now again, this sounds confusing, it's and sure it can does. be, yeah. but let's say you get $500,000 tax credit, a broker comes in and say, I'll give you $400,000 cash for it, and my wealthy client will still come out ahead. And so a landowner can get a check for $400,000. I didn't realize you can actually trade tax credits. That's you can. very strange. You can, <laughs> and, that, and that, the trajectory of conservation in this state went to the sky with that benefit out there. So remember that people are the two-eyed seeing. We're both practical, fiscal agents, and we're also emotional people. And so the combination is, is quite extraordinary. Now, what if you had a landowner who, let's say, didn't have heirs, didn't have kids, didn't yeah. have any heirs? Yeah. Can they donate the land entirely to the Nature Conservancy, or who, who would own it? Well, they, they have every option. They can sell it unrestricted. They can sell it with a conservation easement on it, and that's often the case. And in those circumstances, nice. they'll usually keep a life estate, say, I've sold the land to someone else, it's under easement, but I get to live here until I die. And the, the buyer says that's fine. And, and do you ever have a situation where they don't want to sell it, they just want to give it away? Occasionally we've had, we've had properties donated. In fact, our headquarters in Santa Fe was donated by a woman named Jane Pacheski, who owned 160 or about 200 acres south of Santa Fe with a wonderful old adobe house on it. They were horse people. And she was looking around as she was getting older, what do I do with this property? Well, it was put under a conservation easement, and then she donated the land to the New Mexico Land Conservancy, and that's our headquarters. Okay, so the Land Conservancy can be a landowner then? We, that's the only property that we own and intend to hold on to. Other times we'll have a, a piece donated to us with the idea that we put an easement on it and then sell it and use the revenues to help our operations. And then another option for someone doing this is they could open up access to the public, let's say for recreational 
uses, uh, hiking, biking, hunting, fishing, bird watching, photography, and that's up to them. I've never seen that. And ha- okay. I've never seen that happen. That's, uh, that's usually not part of the, the profile of, okay. of a major landowner. Okay, because no. that, that would turn it into the equivalent in terms of use to, let's say, a national park. If it gets to that point where that's their goal, it'd be wise to sell it or donate it uh-huh. for that purpose. Uh-huh. Yep. Working lands, there's no way they want the hassle of all that recreation going on around them. Well, unless it's after they die. Right? Well, that, that if, that, no, if it's no after hassle. they die, that's, that's, <laughs> that's true. So in, in your experience, what's been the kind of um, maximal situation where there was uh, the maximum use provided to the public? It usually deals that are involving cities and counties. Okay. where they want property for ecological purposes, but then they feel it's, they can manage the recreation through their, their parks departments. Land trusts don't usually do anything like that. So it would become a kind of partnership with the parks department, in a yes. sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. I'm wondering if maybe you'd like to sort of just summarize from the values point of view what this is about. Well, the, the certainty of mortality... Is, uh, was brought home to me about six months ago. I'm a pretty healthy guy. I was hiking, backpacking, doing everything. And all of a sudden I was diagnosed. I had something called an aortic aneurysm, oh, no. which was a swollen yeah. big blood vessel. Fortunately, it didn't burst, but I got put under the knife. They cut me open. They took it out. They put in a tube, and I'm good to go. Amazing. But as we, before the show, we were talking, the psychology of this work is you're dealing with people's sense of mortality and legacy. What am I going to leave behind? I have my kids. I've maybe created a business. I've fed the world. But what about this land that was the basis of all of it? And the legacy piece is really, really critical for many landowners. But once again, you have to talk about you're going to die. This is often part of estate planning, which is, once again, you have to build a relationship with the landowner before they're willing to say, yeah, I'm thinking about my mortality. Sometimes they love their kids, they trust them. Other times, to be honest, they say the kids mm-hmm. don't share my love of ranching. They don't want to grow cotton and chilies. They may just sell this for subdivision. And, and they don't want that. The parents don't feel that's yeah. appropriate. So in a sense, the antidote to the fear of mortality is to achieve a little slice of immortality by doing this. Yep, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in a sense. that yeah. the, the earth that gave birth to you, you're now thanking it. Well, Jack Wright, uh, thank you so much for, for coming to, on to Delving In, uh, a professor in the Department of Geography, and uh, who's done a lot of really impressive work with the New Mexico Land Conservancy and really uh, putting your values into action. So thank you so much. My pleasure. We're at 700,000 acres conserved. By a year, we'll be over 1 million acres. And we'll go on from there. Well, we should have a a party at that point, right? Absolutely. (laughs) I'll buy. All right. Well, thanks again. Okay. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. 
We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.